Well, my, uh, I have the, the privilege, the honor of speaking directly to the women this morning. Uh, just as, yeah, <laughs> Susan's excited. She doesn't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, but just as I had the honor last week of speaking directly to the men, uh, I'm speaking to the women this morning. And just as I said last week, I said, you know, my, my goal last week is that uh, as men, we need to recognize the challenges that we are faced with uh, because of the fall and because of our sinful natures uh, in order to be able to push back against them through the power of the Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit that we have within us, uh, so that we can be godly men, godly men who stand up and, and fight for what is right and stand in the gap where it's needed. And my goal this morning is the exact same thing as it was last week. We need godly women. We need strong, godly women who reflect the Lord's Word, uh, who do not reflect culture's narrative. And I had said last week that the, the Christian message um, is uniquely life-giving. It's not only uniquely life-giving to our souls. I mean, Jesus came to save us, uh, but it is life-giving to our genders as well and how we kind of live out our lives because the biblical narrative gives this beautiful and unique picture of womanhood that you cannot find anywhere else. It is beautiful, it is good, it is right, because it is God's design. And the reality in the world that we live in, especially the culture that we live in, is just as I said last week about manhood, womanhood is under attack. Womanhood is heavily under attack. There are large groups of people now that can't even define what a woman is. A woman is whatever you want to feel like a woman is, and that's just not true. And we need to stand on the truth of God's word. And so in order for women to walk in godliness, just like men to walk in godliness, there is an element of needing to examine your heart, needing to examine yourself and understand what is that fallenness in you? What is that sin nature that women have to fight against the same way that men have to fight against? And that's what we're going to look at today. It's going to be so much fun, women. And so we're going to go on a little bit of a journey. But you need to know your struggles. You need to know your sinful desires in order to identify them and overcome them in Jesus. And just as last week I gave three unique struggles to men, this week we're going to look at three unique struggles or outcomes of the fall that women have to face. And before we dig into it, I just want to say just a couple things. First, it was interesting because as I was preparing for this message, uh, I came upstairs at one point to Kate and I was saying, Man, like as I'm preparing for this message, God's just bringing up these twinges in my own heart uh, as I'm seeing these things and reading God's Word and preparing. And it reminded me that I am a product of my culture. That there are some views that are heavily influenced by culture. And I came up to Kate and I said, man, I don't know if I really want to give this message today. Maybe there's someone else who can do it in my place this morning. Uh, but what I mean by that is, women, you're going to probably feel this message. There are going to be things that you are going to feel, and when your gut responds to it, remember, we are influenced by our culture. There are views that are being screamed at us all day, every day, and God's Word is going to come against those views. It is going to inevitably collide with what culture is communicating to us and the narratives that we are constantly surrounded by. And so as we go through this morning, if you feel opposition, if you kind of feel some offense, if you feel this incredulousness kind of rising up in you, engage it. Don't ignore it and ask the question, why? Why? 
Why do I feel that? The second thing I want to say is that I came to realize not a new realization, but just a fresh again that uh, culture is completely upside down. Culture is, our world is upside down. Uh, our culture is in direct opposition to God. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking back on what I talked about last week where I said that men, because of the fall, we have this tendency of being passive and not standing up and stepping into the gap where we should. And you know what? Culture celebrates that. Culture increasingly celebrates passive men. Sit down. Don't say anything. It's contrary to the Word of God. We talked last week about how men have this issue of listening to the wrong voice. And culture increasingly says, you have to listen to every voice. Every voice is valid as long as it sits within a specific narrative, but every voice is valid and you need to listen to it. And God's word says, absolutely not. God's voice is valid and that's that. And this week as I was preparing for this message, it was the same thing. We're going to look at this morning how the Bible is clear. It says, Eve was deceived, not Adam. Eve was deceived. And right there, to say that sort of thing in our culture, that is inappropriate. To say that the woman was deceived, but not the man. How dare you? How dare you say that? We're going to talk about how childbearing is undoubtedly a part of women's highest purpose and highest calling. It's not all that it is, but it is undoubtedly a massive part of it. And our culture increasingly says, children, they get in your way, women. If you want to achieve what you want to achieve, you need to not have children. You see it all the time, women celebrating their abortions and saying, if I had kept this baby, I couldn't be where I am now. Children have become a problem as opposed to be something to be celebrated as in the Word of God. And the last thing we're going to look at this morning is a woman's desire to rule over her husband. Something that the Bible says is not good. Something that culture would say, you go. You go, women. You be strong. You rule over your husband. Why should you be submissive? How we feeling already? <laughs> like, oh, I'm so glad I came to church this morning. Hey, so let's pray, because like I say, I know we're working against some things, some strongholds, some cultural things this morning, so let's pray that we would hear the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we open your Word and as we look at it, Lord, that the women especially would hear your voice, would hear what you say to them. Father, would you enable me to accurately communicate what you are saying to women. God, we know that your word gives a beautiful penhood and womanhood. And so, Lord, I pray that each heart in here would desire to be influenced by your word, that each heart in here would want to follow your word and would put off the things of culture, would put off the narratives that are completely opposite to what you would say to us. Lord, I ask that you would reveal those things in our hearts that are not of you, that your Holy Spirit would work through our hearts and our minds today and change us and make us more like Jesus Christ. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. 
So let's just dig in right to it. First thing we're going to talk about is that Eve was deceived. I hate that that rhymes, but there was no other way I could think about saying it, and it just takes some of the power out of it, but Eve was deceived. That's all I can really say. Genesis 3.13 says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so we see what we talked about a couple weeks ago that both men and women struggle with, blame. Right? As Adam blamed the woman and ultimately blamed God for the woman, the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me. It's his fault. We like to pass blame when we come under the eyes of God. But the woman admits here, she says, I was deceived. And this is a significant thing that has ripples throughout history for women. Paul affirms the deception of Eve, and he actually uses it as an example for other followers of Jesus when he was writing to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul's saying to followers of Jesus, Hey, I'm worried that what happened to Eve will happen to you as well, because Satan wants nothing more than to just get you off the right road and deceive you. And so we could leave it there. We could say, okay, simply Eve was deceived. It led to the fall. Christians have to continue to be aware of the deceptions of Satan, and that's that. But Scripture doesn't leave it there. God's Word does not leave the implications of Eve's deception at that point. It takes it further. There are implications of Satan's beguiling of Eve for all women throughout history, including now in this day and age. And we see those implications outlined in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy, who was a young leader in the church. He was Paul, or Paul was mentoring Timothy, building him up in the faith, and Timothy was a leader in the church in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul lays out what Timothy's aim should be and what all Christians' aim should be. He says to Timothy, okay, we need to be good stewards of everything that God gives us. But Paul puts a special emphasis for Timothy on the church. He says, steward everything well, especially God's church. And then Paul says to Timothy, make sure that you have Christian love. Christian love comes from a pure heart and a sincere faith. And so these are our aims, Timothy. Steward well, especially God's church, and love everyone with this Christian love that comes from a pure heart and a sincere faith. And he charges Timothy based on those things. He says, wage the good warfare of the faith, Timothy. Have a good conscience as a leader in the church, and then he gives them specific uh, instructions of what that looks like, of what it means to be a good steward, of what it means to have sincere faith. And he does this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 says, first of all then, Timothy, based on these things, first of all, that's, this is what you should do. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to pray for all people, especially those in leadership, especially those in government. Pray for them. I also want in every place that you gather, I want the men to lift their hands up and lift their holy hands in praise and prayers to God, not 
fighting with one another, not quarreling with one another, but praising the Lord with hands lifted high. And I want women to adorn themselves respectfully. And so Timothy's giving all of these instructions. And then he gets to an instruction that is incredibly, uh, what do you say, fought about in the church. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so Paul's giving Timothy all these instructions for the church. He says, do this in every place. Men, lift your hands up high. Women, adorn yourselves respectfully. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And I'll tell you why. And here's two reasons, Timothy, for why that can't happen. Reason number one, Adam was formed first and then Eve. He's saying it was baked right into God's design. Adam was made first. It shows that he is the leadership. And then Eve came along after that. And reason number two, Timothy, for why this can't happen is Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So this is why I say that the deception of Eve has implications for women throughout history. Paul is using it as the foundation of one of the most disputed commands in the church in our day, that women should not teach, that women should not have authority over a man. Now, some of you are feeling this right now. The narrative of culture is pushing back, and you're thinking, that's sexist. That's outdated. That is for a different culture. That is only for that time. That is only for that church. We know more now. We've come a long way. Here's the thing. I want to caution you if you are thinking those things. And I want to caution you for this reason. Paul is pointing back to creation. He is not pointing to a culture. He is not pointing to a time. He is not pointing to a specific church. He is pointing all the way back to creation, to God's original design and the fall as he makes this argument. That means it's beyond culture. That means it's beyond a specific time. It is beyond a specific church. It is baked into the creation itself from the beginning. He's not referencing a cultural moment. He's referencing God's design. Every argument against it you will hear is about a cultural moment. It was for that time. It was for then. It's not for now. It's baked into creation. We cannot say that. He says, Adam was made first, not Eve. Adam was not deceived. Eve was. So women, you may be wondering, what's my point? What does the deception of Eve 
and Paul's reference to it mean for all women? Does it mean that women in general are more easily deceived than men? Does it mean that women are exploited easier because of something in their nature? No, I don't think so. I wouldn't make that kind of assertion. I would never make that kind of a conclusion because Paul doesn't. God's word does not go there. And I've seen men very easily beguiled. Let me tell you. Paul says simply, Eve was deceived. He doesn't give any indication it's an indictment on all women that you're more easily deceived than men. And so what does it have to do with? And why does it matter? It has to do with a woman's desire to usurp God's design. It has nothing to do with being more easily beguiled. It has everything to do with your desire to usurp the design of God. To think there's a better way. A more life-giving way. It has to do with obedience to the Word of God. Similar to last week, men, they have this tendency to listen to the wrong voice. And I would ask the same thing of women. What voice are you listening to? Because just like in the garden, there is a voice trying to beguile you by asking you, did God really say? Did God really say you can't do that? Is God really saying that there's no space for you to use your gifting? Is God really saying that he's limiting your ability as a woman? You see, the root of the deception in these matters is when we distrust God's intent. That's the key behind it. It's when we distrust God's intent. We bring culture into it, and we see, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over man. And we think, how dare God? How dare he? How dare he limit women in this way? How dare he not allow them to do that? It's because we're bringing culture's intention into God's word. We have to know God's intention behind these things. It's not outdated. It's, it's for here. It's for now. Culture is screaming at women contrary things to the Word of God. But God's intention in these things, like all things, is life-giving. It's, it's for your good. He's not out to limit women. It's a lie. His intention for you is good. But culture screams at women contrary to the Word of God. We looked at Abraham and Sarah last week. Sarah, she usurped the word of God. Abraham had been given a promise by God, and Sarah said, let's do it this way, Abraham. It was contrary to the word of God. Now, for those of you who were not here last week, you're sitting there and thinking, man, he's blaming a lot on women. Go back and listen to last week's sermon, because they work together. As a, as a woman tries to usurp the authority of God, what happens? The man is passive. He's just letting it happen. It's a two-sided coin. There's issues on both sides. So uh, if you didn't hear last week, I'm not blaming everything on women. Go back and listen to last week. 
I gave men plenty to think about too, okay? Here's the thing. The path to life is trust. The path to life is in obedience to God's word. Will you always understand? No. But can we trust that God has his best intentions for you? Yes, because of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to undo what was done in the garden. The curse is broken in Jesus. As one who has come to faith in Christ, the the curse continues to be more and more undone in you as you walk obediently by the word of God, believing when you cannot see, not usurping God's good design, but trusting in it. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two, a woman's pain would be multiplied in childbearing. And all the women said, not amen, don't say amen, right? (laughs) Amen, oh, no. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So any woman here who has had children, you understand this curse. I don't have to tell you about it. I've seen it, not experienced it personally, not going to go there. But, but maybe what's missed is the significance of why God cursed childbearing specifically. And the answer is clear when we compare the curse that God puts upon Eve to the curse that God puts upon Adam. And here's what we see when we compare the two. God curses Adam and Eve in the area that is deeply related to a function of their greatest purpose. Genesis 2.15 said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. So Adam was called to work and keep. And what does God do? God curses the domain that Adam was called to work. He makes his work harder. And so God directly curses that significant piece of the man's purpose. He made his function harder. And so when we consider the curse over Eve, I don't think it's any different. God brought forth Eve as a helper for Adam. And there are many aspects of that. The curse that God puts upon Eve reveals a major aspect of her role as helper to bear children. Meaning childbearing for a woman is deeply related to her greatest purpose. And that is an unpopular opinion in our culture. Culture would immediately scream, a woman is much more than bearing children. And I would say, absolutely, yes. But she is not less than that. And it is very much tied to her purpose. And we, church, we need to recapture the high, the high calling of motherhood. Like, think about it. Like, it's not this small thing like our culture makes it seem. Like some of you, when, when you hear motherhood is strongly tied to your pers- purpose, you balk at it. You don't like that. But that's cultures speaking in you. The Word of God holds motherhood to this really high regard. Like just think about it. Just think about it. You are solely responsible 
for growing one of God's greatest creations. Like in you, he knits together an image bearer. And that image bearer grows and develops inside you. And then miraculously, you bring forth a child fully formed nine months later. And then you are responsible for keeping that child, that life flourishing, protecting that child, providing for that child. You, you grow that life up, you teach it, you shape it, you prepare it. Like God has given you the world's greatest discipleship opportunity in your home. There are few things in our world that are more lasting. There are a few things that are more eternal. There are a few things that have more of an impact than a mother's role in her child's life. There are a few things that are harder than that. There are a few things that are more rewarding than that. And there are a few things that are more challenging and painful than that. And few things that are more consuming and few things that are more of an offering to God of what a mother lays down for her children. So why do we balk at it? Why do we think it's insignificant? It's a high calling. It's a massive calling. We need to recapture that as followers of Jesus. And as I say that, I also know because of the curse, because of sin, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly painful. Because of the curse because of sin, some can't experience motherhood. And I understand the pain of it. I don't understand it. But there's pain in that. And those that are mothers, there's pain in being a mother. I think the reality of that is evident in the curse. If we just look at it, God says, he says, I shall surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You know, I was thinking about it this week, and I was like, why does he state that twice? Why does he say, you will have pain, you, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Why would he say it twice? And so I started looking at it, and he uses different words. The word pain is different in both of those sentences. The word that's used for childbearing and bringing forth di- children is different in both of those sentences. And so that led me to conclude that God is not just talking about the physical act of birthing children. There's more to it than that. And so I looked at the words for childbearing and bring forth in the Hebrew. And childbearing is this word, heron. And it means literally conception. It means literally pregnancy. It is referring directly to childbirth, to the carrying and the birthing of a child. But then I looked at this word, bring forth, and it's this word, yalad meaning to bear, to beget, or to bring up. And so we see in the curse, the bringing forth of children would be painful physically. And the raising up of children would be more sorrowful emotionally. And I think if you're a mom in here, you understand that. In general, the pain and toil of raising kids affects women more than men. We even have a term for it. It's called mom guilt. 
Never heard anyone say dad guilt. I haven't. But there's mom guilt. And it goes back to the curse. And so the bearing and raising of children is deeply connected to a woman's purpose. It doesn't mean that that is a woman's only calling. Absolutely not. You read Proverbs 31, and you see the picture of that woman. She has her hands in so many different things. But it doesn't negate that it is part of the greatest calling as a helper to Adam. And this is affirmed in what Adam calls his wife. Because Adam names his wife Eve. And why does he name her that? Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Motherhood is not a small thing. It is a massive calling. Third, maybe the most fun, a woman's desire will be contrary to her husband. A woman's desire will be contrary to her husband. The second part of Genesis 3.16 says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, I really like the ESV translation in this because it makes it clear that that desire in a woman is negative. Whereas other translations don't uh, translate it that clearly. ESV uses the word contrary. But the word that's in the Hebrew is this word ale, which means to have a desire towards something. And so at first glance, it says the wife's mind or the wife's desire is toward her husband. And that sounds good. But why does the ESV translate it contrary to her husband? And it's because of the word desire that's used in that sentence. The word desire that's used in that sentence is only found three places in Scripture. It's found here in Genesis 3.16. It's found in the Song of Songs. And it's found in Genesis 4.7 when God is talking to Cain. And in some of your Bibles, you'll actually even have a note there next to 3.16 that in the bottom says four, Genesis 4.7. It tells you that. And so... Genesis 4-7 helps us understand what God is saying about the woman's desire in Genesis 3-16. In Genesis 4-7, God is confronting Cain. He is confronting him because Cain is angry that his offering was not accepted by God. And in Genesis 4-7, God says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What's interesting about Genesis 3.16 and 4.7 is if you could put them next to each other, the parallels are striking in these two verses. Genesis 3.16 says, your desire shall be contrary to your, your husband. Genesis 4.7, sin's desire is contrary to you. Genesis 3.16, but he shall rule over you, Genesis 4.7, but you must rule over it. They're incredibly paralleled with one another. So to Cain, God is saying, if you do well, you will be accepted, but if you don't rule over sin, sin's desire is against you, it is towards you, but it is contrary to you, and it will rule over you. You need to rule over sin, Cain, or it's going to rule over you. 
In the same way, Eve's desire is toward her husband, is contrary to her husband. It is an evil desire to subvert his rule and rule over him, but Adam needs to rule over her. Now, before you get upset, think about what the Bible talks about when it says the word rule. It is not talking about iron fist. We talked about this before. The picture of a man leading his wife is Jesus leading the church. So the broader context that we see here is that the desire for Eve to rule over Adam is a sinful desire. And that desire is in every woman. A wife will desire to rule over her husband. It is not what should happen, but it is what will happen. But the husband is to rule his wife. This is the design of it. That does not mean it is a given. Again, because why? Because we're passive. Do you see how these work together? She's going to try and rule over you, Adam. You need to rule over her. Yeah, but Adam, you're too passive. You need to take your proper position in your family. And then when you do that, she will feel less the need to rule over you because you're doing it properly. But she'll always fight against it. There will always be that desire. And she needs to submit to the Lord. Here's a picture that we need to have in our minds. The woman was taken out of man as a helper for him. Equal to him, but with a unique role to him. She was and is to help her husband subdue and have dominion over creation. And in the garden we see Eve take a leader role. She goes to the tree, she takes it, she eats, she gives it to Adam. He lets her take on that leadership role. And what happens? The world is no longer subdued. The world is cursed. And humanity no longer has proper dominion. We think these things are small in our hearts, but they're not. They're contrary to God's design. And so in the fall, we see the deception of Eve affects all women. The childbearing, which is tied to Eve's greatest purpose, became much harder, and that women will try to usurp the order of authority given by God. These are things that women have to face in their fallen natures. But just like all of us, just like men, God did not leave us to fight these things on our own. We're going to look at the promise that God makes Adam and Eve next week. Well, more the promise that he makes to the serpent of what's going to happen to him, but we're going to look at that promise next week, a promise of redemption that ultimately came through Jesus Christ. And that is the hope, and that is the promise, and that is who we are rooted in.
You know what 1 Timothy 2 says? It's, it's amazing. 1 Timothy gives these instructions. I do not allow a woman to do this. I do not allow a woman to uh, rule over a man and so on. And then in 2.15, he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. The woman was cursed in childbearing. And, Timothy, and Paul says to Timothy, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You know what's amazing about that sentence? It starts with Eve and then it goes to the plural. Do you see that? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they, who's they? All women. So what's Paul saying here? It's amazing what Paul is saying here. He's saying that curse that is upon you, guess what? It's not the final word. That curse that is upon you is not the final word. That curse of childbearing, that struggle that you face, women, is not the final word because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came to save you. Jesus Christ came to redeem you. And Paul is saying that, yes, you're going to have to go through childbearing. There's going to be pain and there's going to be sorrow. But if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved by faith in him. And he will redeem you. And he will make you what you're meant to be. Just like he says in somewhere else, it's through fire that you'll be saved. You have to go through some fire, but you'll be saved. You have to go through some pain. You have to go through from some sorrow, but you trust in Jesus. And what does it mean to trust in Jesus? What does it mean to love him? It means to obey him. It means to obey his word. Jesus says, this is how I know you love me. You obey my word. So, women, that is your hope. That is your hope. The same as a man, the same as every person. Jesus Christ is our hope. Through him we are redeemed. Through him we are made what we're supposed to be. And can I just leave you with this picture? And I, I think it's a beautiful picture that, you know, when we talk about the man ruling over the woman, I already said it. It's a picture of Jesus and his church. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus rules over us and we submit to him. And that's the picture that we see in marriage. That's why it's so important. God's saying, look, this is a picture of my church, women. When you trust your husband, you trust my design, it's a picture of what I'm doing in the world as the church gladly submits to Jesus. That's a beautiful picture that we get to live out in our marriages. And when the church submits to Jesus, it is good for the church. It glorifies God. And it's the created order. I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying that in every marriage it's as easy in others. I get that. Sometimes things have to be generalized from the pulpit, but I understand. I want to leave you with a growth step, and it's the same growth step that I gave to the men last week. Women, if you don't have someone discipling you, if you don't have another woman, a godly woman that you can look to, that can help you in these things, in other things, find that woman. Here's what you do. You look at a woman whose faith you want to emulate. You look at a woman whose family you want yours to look like. 
You look for a woman who trusts in the Lord, that you want to trust in the Lord, and you go up to that woman and you say, would you show me? Would you show me how to do that? We need men and women in our lives to build us up, to train us up, to disciple us in Christ. And so if you don't have that woman, find her. Ask her to show you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the reality that your word does press against culture. Oh, Lord, what good would it be if it didn't? Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive. Father, I pray your blessing over the women today. Lord, I pray that they would go from here and they would reflect on your word, that in their own hearts and in their own lives, they would take a moment and sit before you and ask you, Father, examine me. Where are those areas in my life that I'm trying to usurp your good design? What is it about the call that you have given me that I think is less than? Where do I doubt your intentions are good? And help me to love my husband well. Father, I thank you that Jesus is our hope. That in Christ, we can be these godly men and women that you call us to be, not by our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit that's within us. And Father, I know for each person that's here this morning, their desire is to love you well, serve you well, and have their life reflect Christ. And so, Lord, help all of us examine where our lives don't. And, Lord, we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your forgiveness when we come to you and, and lay down those things that are against your word. Work in our hearts, Lord. Stir in us. Make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.